Alright, welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me again today is our resident Star Wars fan, John. So glad to be back one hour later. <laughs> yeah, we're doing a, a double feature today, although you guys will be listening to this uh, a couple of weeks apart. And and we're talking about another Rogue Squadron book, Michael A. Stackpole's fourth X-Wing story, The Back to War. First off, though, if you want to support the show, uh, get access to all of our bonus content. Take a look at all of our fun stuff on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. Or if you want to do a, a quick one-time tip, check us out on Coffee. But for now, let's waste no time in covering the climactic book of the main Rogue Squadron arc. The Back to War picks up immediately after the events of the Krytos Trap, with the Rogues having resigned their commissions and begun a guerrilla insurgency against Isard and Typhera. Wedge quickly finds support, however, as sympathetic elements within the New Republic engineered a surplus that allowed the Rogues to purchase an entire squadron of X-Wings. On top of that, Gavin Darklighter helps Corrin and Mirax, with the timely aid of Mirax's father, Booster, to buy munitions from his Uncle Huff. With the rogues outfitted, they move into the Empress-class space station they took from Zinj in the last book, and they launch their war. Wedge, Corrin, and and company harass Isard's supply lines, stealing Bacta and destroying ships, until Isard ambushes them with the Victory-class Star Destroyer Corruptor and the Interdictor Cruiser Aggregator. The rogues only survive thanks to the timely arrival of the automated Alderanian war cruiser Valiant, and Wedge kills Captain Convarian and the Corruptor. After that, they bribe Captain Sar Yonka to bring his own Star Destroyer to their side, and with the help of Taloncard and his smugglers, set a trap. Isard sends the Lusankia and Virulence to destroy their space station, but find themselves trapped in a gravity well with hundreds of torpedo launchers trained on them. Meanwhile, the rogues and booster smugglers set their bait. After Captain Drisso and the Lusankia escape the station, they arrive back at Typhera and are attacked by Yonka's Star Destroyer, the Rogues, the Valiant, and the Smugglers. The timely arrival of the Virulence appears to turn the tide back in favor of Isard's forces, but Booster had captured the ship and turns its guns on Lusankia. With her fleet in shambles, Isard tries to flee with Arisi's elite squadron flying cover. Corrin and Tycho are on the spot, however, and kill Arisi before destroying Isard's Isard's shuttle. I can't talk today. Don't worry about it. In the aftermath, Corrin and Mirax get married while Booster comes out of an epic negotiation with possession of his very own Star Destroyer, dubbed the Errant Venture. All right. Yeah, so John, let's start off by talking about the Back to War in relation to the previous three books. It's the best one. Yeah, it's the best one. It's the best. (laughs) Uh, I, I would like to know... If there are any any uh, Star Wars X-Wing fans, Rogue Squadron fans out there who don't think this book is the best. I, I, I don't know how. Because right. it, it gives you the most action yeah. and the most character development. Yeah, there's just so much that happens in this book. Yeah, it, it has all the space battles you could want, all the fight scenes you could want, and... Growth for the characters, uh, new characters being introduced, you know, satisfying conclusions to plot threads. It's, it's, it's great. And on top of that, Stackpole just continues to get better as a writer. I mean, he, some of the some of the the stumbles, some of the ticks and crutches he uses in earlier books are 
if not gone in this book, at least minimized. Uh, his prose flows better. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I've criticized some of the earlier books for, you know, the the overly technical detail in the Starfighter combat. Um, there's still technical detail, but it it feels more cinematic rather than descriptive. Yes. Um, I mean this this book really just kind of has it all as far as uh, Stackpole's yeah. Rogue books go. It's a top tier Star Wars book. It's up there with Thrawn trilogy. Yeah, that yeah. I I would I'd believe that. I I think this isn't quite to the level of of you know Alston or Stover, but but it is depends on the title, but. Well, <laughs> uh, but but yeah, it's it's solid. I mean, it's I, really really good. I like this book better than the first Red Squadron book. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. I I do not. I think it's close, but but the the Wraith books are just. I think it's a little better. Um, but yeah, I I don't want to just unrelentingly gush over how good this book is. Yeah. Um, you know there there are a couple of things I noticed that are. I'd say it's criticism, but I don't, I don't think it's necessarily negative. Uh, but one thing I noticed, maybe more than in any of the first three books, is that Stackpole relies a lot in this book on internal monologue for info dumps, especially from Voru's point of view. Yes. We get a lot of kind of like, here's everything that's happened to set Isard up on Typhera. In Voru's thoughts, where he's like, well, we did this and that and the next thing, so I need to do this now. Yeah, it's... And, yeah, there, there is a big jump. I think it's supposed to impart that there's some lapse of time between Kratos Trap and this one, because you go from Lusanki is blasting off from Coruscant, and that's the end of... Kratos Trap. So I, I think the issue is that Kratos Trap from the rogue's point of view mm-hmm. ends much later because there's that epilogue scene with Corrin Fair. Yeah. resigning and at that scene they find out that Isard has gone to Typhera yes. and taken over with an internal coup and okay. set yeah. herself up and everything and he's like, alright, well I need, to, I need to go do something about that. Mm-hmm. But from the Imperial point of view, we don't have curtain lure anymore. And so we have this gap uh, where Stackpole has to catch us up because he's been, he's been keeping us pretty well apprised of what the enemies have been doing Yep. up until lure gets killed. And then you're like, okay, things are intense now and, and you get lost in the climax. Mm-hmm. And then he starts this book and he's like, wait a second. I don't know. I need to make sure, yeah, like I need to make sure that my readers know what's going on on Typhera. I'm going to make Voru the point of view character, but I need to make him kind of backfill that um, that gap in the timeline. Voru is your point of view bad guy in this book. Yes. A little bit of a Reese, but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, a tiny bit of a Reese, that's right. Yeah, she has. Um, None of Isard. You only view Isard from an outside perspective. Correct. Do we ever get an Isard point of view? Don't think so. At pretty, least not in the first four books. Pretty sure you get mostly Voru and a little bit of Arisi and no Isard. That sounds right. Mm-hmm. I think so. Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't think we get... It's all from Lure's point of view in the earlier books. We mm-hmm. never get... We never get a nice hard point of view in Kratos' trap, right? She's, she's always... Yeah, she's always isolated. Mm-hmm. You don't get a sense of her... I mean, you get a sense of her psyche and her motivations, but only from an external yeah. perspective. But that makes sense. I, it, it helps kind of build her up as this... You know, it's the same thing that, for instance, uh, Timothy Zahn does with Gilad Paleon and Thrawn. Yes. We don't get Thrawn points of view. We get Paleon points of view. Y- you get your yeah. normal person, you know, yeah. viewing the main antagonist. So the mastermind. Yes. And viewing, yeah. But, so, sorry to get right into it. Um, yeah. <laughs> no. You, you, you uh, spurred me on using the word mastermind. Isard in this book is Sucks. losing it. <laughs> so so Isard is is Rogue Squadron, at least the uh first um, um at least the first four Rogue Squadron books. She's the big bad. Yes. Um and she's she's plotting, she's manipulative, she's um emotionally unstable. She's she's very She's very threatening, and she's she's always, at least through Crito's trap, she's a bit of an unknown. And then in Crito's trap, we get to see the side of her that's you know trying to brainwash Corin and and the whole um, manipulation of his psyche and all that. And she gets frustrated. Yeah, but she's clearly, and I think the books show this both in universe and what's described narratively. She's not a military leader. Mm-mm at all Mm-mm. she's i mean her literal title she she well she seized it by killing her father but that's side of imperial she's um, director of imperial she's the director of imperial intelligence yes and what she really enjoys which is clear is um you know manipulating sleeper agents and intel plots and and backstabbing and subterfuge she's not yeah. she's not a straight-up tactician she's not a fleet leader um she just pretty much gained legitimacy through manipulation and and yeah and subterfuge yeah that that's that's how she comes to power and i like how that's thrown into relief in this book where we start seeing the military around her come into conflict with her and disrespect yes. her yes cuz and there there's there's a lot of aspects of that and how she interacts with her her military forces in this book. Because you have these slavish sycophants who will do whatever she says. Then you have people who are scared of her and will do everything mm-hmm. out of fear. Then you have others who question her competence and are like, why am I even here? Um, and you have the Thyferans, Thyferans, however you want to pronounce it. Yeah. Um, the Thyferans themselves um which that gets into kind of an interesting commentary on colonialism i think uh and and certainly capitalist like yes. or like not even capitalist but like like super late stage capitalist like the the entire culture is a monopoly yes you know it's like well let's talk about that real quick cuz every other little plot in the book kind of connects to that mm-hmm. so in the last book, we have this big disease um, that's 
pandemic is killing all the aliens, leaving the humans untouched, and thus destabilizing the New Republic through racial tension. We yep. talked about that. Um, in, in this book, Azard has gone to Thyfera, the one planet where Bacta comes from, you know, the, the Saudi Arabia of the Star Wars universe, yeah. the Persian Gulf of the Star Wars universe, <laughs> and she's monopolized it through both military and political control. Um, and Thyfera is a really interesting planet, and it's probably, I, sh- I shouldn't say that, because there's there's other interesting planets in the Rogue Squadron series, but it's probably the most fully developed planet in the Rogue Squadron series, because you have this dynamic of Bacta, this, this medical resource that's incredibly valuable, um, and it is produced and traditionally maintained by the indigenous species, the Vradics, who are giant praying mantises um yeah and at some point in their history it's not really made clear um and it also doesn't really matter narratively uh humans colonized the planet and developed two companies uh literally described as cartels in the book which maintain a monopoly over back to trade between them Mm -hmm. um and so you have this kind of colonial dynamic where it's like, well, the humans came in and now they control the Bacta. But in reality, it's production, it's refinement. Um, everything rests on the Vradics, the indigenous people. Right. Um, and so what Isar does is she comes into Thyfera, monopolize, she, she takes over um, the one of the Bacta cartel families. Um, the other one kind of plays a role, but like hardly at all. Like they don't really come up. Yeah, like they they've been driven underground basically. Ye- right. Like yeah. a lot of them have been imprisoned or killed, and yeah. And then of course Bror Jace, uh, who we thought was dead, yeah, is is in fact alive, and he's from that family, and he he shows up and flies with the rogues again. But but, but other main, than that, Zaltan doesn't really do much. No, the main dynamic is between human Thyferan monopolizers versus. Radix, praying mantis people, um, indigenous population, rebels. Right. Um, and I, I'm not sure if this book is trying to say anything bigger about colonialism or capitalism or anything like that. No, it's it's tough to it's tough to go much deeper um, because this is a pretty short book. Yeah, and, it's like and even then, pages. it's maybe maybe 10% of the book deals directly mm-hmm. with with this di, you know colonial dynamic i mean i i can compare it to something like the divine cities trilogy by robert jackson bennett which we've covered on on inking out loud in the past uh which is three five to six hundred page books all about colonial dynamics mm-hmm. you know, all about what happens when the balance of power shifts between colonizers and the colonized all about oppression and repression of culture. And, and then I read this, I'm like, it, it this is just very surface level. Yeah. It, it, I, I don't mind it being there though. No, I don't, I don't mind it either. Um, it, it just, no, it, it, it comes it, down to what kind of story Michael A. Stackpole was can, you know, um, concerned with writing, and that was a fun action story. He's yeah. not here to write some post-colonial, you know, <laughs> treatise on yeah, yeah, literary <laughs> yeah. masterpiece. Uh, he's here to write a story about 
snubby jocks in X-Wings blowing up TIE fighters right. <laughs> and then and then flavor it with some character development. But like, <laughs> I, I don't want to discount it too much because it it gives this story a little bit more of that real world flavor that weight yeah. that not every Star Wars book so has. it's yeah it's not every Star Wars book you're right but this sort of basic cultural social criticism does pop up fairly often in Star Wars books if you want a deeper more impressive version of it you can go read Shatterpoint by Matthew Stover yes <laughs> uh, basically if if you're reading a Star Wars book and you're like oh I see I see, like, the beginning of a, of a theme here. Uh, you want a deeper version of that? Go, Go read a Star Stover. Wars book by, by Matthew Stover. Um, <laughs> you, you want moral relativism and philosophy? Go read Traitor by Matthew Stover. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, but still, um, I, I like this dynamic in the book. And it also creates a political tension... For our heroes. So the New Republic, the good guys, right? They're more or less the legitimate government in the galaxy now. They hold the capital. Um, but their core tenets, their their moral foundation is we're not going to mess with member worlds. Um, Internal affairs. Exactly. We're not going to suborn their own internal political conflicts right yeah. and so that's the reason why it's like okay Thyfera has been taken over by our Isard who's clearly a bad person and is monopolizing the back to trade with the <coughs> quote-unquote iron fist of her <coughs> star dreadnought <coughs> yeah um <coughs> more on that later um even though she's a bad person uh, monopolizing this key resource through immoral means, the people of Thyfera, that is to say the humans, the colonizers, um, are supportive of her regime, and thus we are not going to mess with it. Um, which is interesting, because you, you can see the United States, contemporary United States, contemporary Western Europe, reflecting a similar policy um you know it's it's reminiscent of real world politics it's like well we get this person is bad but we really can't do anything about it because of the unique dynamics to that specific area um so we're not going to bother with any sort of military intervention um interesting point is this a pro-interventionist star wars book <laughs> <laughs> anyways <laughs> our our heroes um our heroes decide to formally resign their commissions and partner with smugglers and other fringe elements uh to wage a guerrilla war against Isard's regime and liberate the world so that Bacta can be freely traded for the medical benefit of all free peoples of the galaxy. Yeah. And on top of that, there's the narrative effect of allowing the story to happen in the first place because were the New Republic allowed to intervene, Isard is cut off from the vast majority of her power now. She has yes. four ships. Yes. yes, one of them is 
an executor class. One executor, two ISDs, one BSD. But it's, you know, if the New Republic were able to concentrate on her, it's like, okay, we're just going to bring in, like, the fourth fleet. Yeah. And now you have... 300 New Republic ships yeah. surrounding the planet and she it doesn't does. matter that you have a dreadnought. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, so Stackpole needed a way to allow the story to happen and he did it in a clever way that adds layers to the world building, essentially. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I think this book has excellent just flavor and believability yes. within the universe. Yeah. The scale is good. Um, yeah. The scale makes sense within the Star Wars universe, and that's kind of rare. It, it is. And, and it's especially rare in Stackpole books. Yes. Because he's very much on the minimalist end, where it's like one smaller numbers. Yeah. You know, one Star Destroyer can it's terrorize a, a sector, deal. kind of like. Yeah. You know, uh, where and, there's other works that contradict that. Mm hmm pretty definitively but but here it's like it makes sense that the numbers are small yes. the rogues are cut off from any kind of substantial support infrastructure isard is cut off because she's made this uh, an internal typharon thing mm-hmm. um she just happens to have a couple of loyal captains who still believe she's the best the vast know. majority of the empire is not behind her now yeah 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 like at, at this point, what the the majority of the empire is kind of separated among like Zinge, Teradoc. Yeah, even the Imperial Remnant Harsk. proper is like, well, she created the Moth Council. Yeah, we're yeah. we're we're gonna go over here and mm-hmm. figure something else out. Um, so and her her instability as a person as a leader has cost her support. Yeah. Yeah. Because you even see, I think they talk about it. Um, well, it's what drives Seryanka into the arms of Wedge and the Rogues. That too. Um, D- Deep Dive's Star Wars nerddom here. They talk about um, Harsk yes. lending her ships. Um, and Harsk is another Imperial warlord who's looking for a legitimate leader. Um, but Isard is so unstable, both tactically and personally, that he's like, ah, sure, I'll lend you. He's like, I ship. really need this back to so yeah. I'll send you the aggregator, but I'm not sending my pilots with it. Exactly. Or my, my I'm fighters. Not, you have I'm to not spending personnel yeah. on you because you're clearly not someone that we should be investing in. Yeah. 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 So the, there's a lot of depth to the in world politics of this yeah. book, which isn't really there as much in the first three books. It's, it, it's not. When, this, when politics come in, it's pretty straightforward. This book feels like a part, and, and the Ray Squadron books that follow this one, they feel part of a bigger Star Wars universe. You can tie them into, yes. um, you can tie them into Courtship of Princess Leia. You can tie them into the Thrawn trilogy. You can tie them into, right. you name it. It feels, and, and this is impressive because the, Bantam era EU was not planned not unified as a cohesive yeah. unified work. Yeah, this isn't the new Jedi Order where they sat down yeah. and they're like, we're gonna plot out this whole huge story arc and then we're gonna divvy it up and let a bunch of different authors play in this sandbox. Yeah. It's like we're just 
anarchy. Like, let's yeah. let authors do whatever they want. And if it lines up, cool. We'll retcon it later. And yeah, there's there's heavy retconning in the band Mara, but this book feels like it jives with the rest. It feels yes. like part of a cohesive universe. Yeah, like there, in, in fact, I believe there's an author's note or, or acknowledgements or something at the end where, where um, yes, uh, Stackpole specifically calls out and he says, you know, uh, the author would like to thank the following people for their various contributions to the book and he goes through a few things and then he says Kevin J. Anderson, Kathy Tires, Bill Smith, Bill Slavichek, Peter Schweig Schweighofer? Schweighofer? That's a name. Schweighofer? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Michael Coggy and Dave Wolverton for the material they created and the advice they offered. Timothy Zahn for being a wonderful co-conspirator and vetting chapters so quickly. So it's like clearly even though he wasn't part of a unified planned storyline he was cribbing from other books using previously established well, material to like e even if the rest of the authors weren't concerned with continuity stackpole was stackpole was stackpole alston and zahn always got along together well yes and referenced each other's and wolverton with Although Anderson and Alston did not get along. No, they did not. <laughs> um, but, and but I'm not sure Anderson and Stackpole really got along that well either. Anderson kind of does his own thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? Sorry, that's outside the scope of this. Yeah, this is it, a, that's a, a, a discussion An for iJedi. Anderson <laughs> goes to great lengths to incorporate some other works into his books. So yes. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pile on him. Because if you read his Jedi Academy trilogy, um, no comment on the quality, but it, it 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 he does a lot to bring in like Dark Empire. I'll comment on the quality. It's fine. It's it, not the worst. It's it's fine. Yeah, his books are fine. Um, <laughs> they're not as bad as the haters say, but they're not up there with this or or Zahn. much less. Yeah, the really upper yeah. crust. Yeah. you know, it's not the Thrawn trilogy, but it, it's it's worth reading. If yeah. you love the universe. It's not the Revenge of the Sith novelization. If, if you want to read about Luke <laughs> starting the Jedi Academy. Yeah, um, lots and, of fun. And then go play Jedi Outcast. That's a great Oh, yes. Mm. Yeah. Because mm. those chronologically follow each other. Ah, these episodes are, are wonderful chaos. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry that we're all over the place. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not apologizing. <laughs> Nothing wrong with broader commentary on the Star Wars EU. Yeah, exactly. Um Let's see what some other style things. Oh yeah, so I um I had one thing highlighted during the the brief jaunt on Tatooine. Oh yes, where Corrin is talking with Mirax. This is Corrin Horn, a guy who has never been to Tatooine before. Mm -hmm. Born and bred on Corellia, a temperate planet. And he says to Mirax, "Your father's got enough pull here so that two guys who'd suck the eyes out of a dead Bantha's head run like droids being pursued by Jawas." Why the hell would a guy from Corellia who's never been to Tatooine suddenly start making Tatooine like it's there, like and, and I, I made a comment and I was like, is it illegal to use metaphors involving non-native species when you're on a planet? <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot well that that goes into like there's a lot of um metaphors referencing things that casual Star Wars fans yes. would know. Yeah, yeah. That that's a that's a thing throughout the whole Rogue Squadron series. 
It's like Akbar talks about the ocean because he's a fish person from an ocean planet. Yes. You know that if you see Ma- if you see Return of the Jedi, you're like, that salmon is in charge of, <laughs> of, the, of the rebel fleet. <laughs> and it's like, this planet blazed like the twin sons of Tatooine. It's like, yeah. I remember that scene from New Hope. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's, it's just... It, a lot of Star Wars books do this. This is this is something that I struggle with later in life when I'm when I'm evaluating books on their own merit. Yes, and and I'm like without the the, the nostalgia glasses on. Yeah, yeah. Um, like clearly, you know, when this book came out, this was in the 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 early to mid years of the resurgence of star Wars. And they're like, we got to hook in as much of the audience who loved those movies as possible. So we need to make sure that there are things in these books they'll connect with. Yeah. Even if it doesn't make sense in the book. Yeah. Because for those people, they'll be like, Oh, that's, that's the thing. I know that. (laughs) That's from a movie. And they will stop and think like, why would Corin know about, like Jawas chasing droids and guys sucking eyes out of dead Bantha skulls. He's never been to Tatooine before. The only the only thing he knows about Tatooine is that Luke Skywalker came from there. Yeah. Like they don't stop to think like wait, he would have no in universe reason yeah. to know anything about Tatooine. That's the thing with Tatooine. Minor pet peeve. Uh tangent. Um the Deng Planet gets mentioned all the time in every st- like old EU, new EU. It's like Tatooine. It's it's supposed to be a backwater. Yeah, nobody's like, supposed but, to know or care about this place. That's yeah. the whole point. <laughs> it's like Luke is a nobody. You know where George Lucas grew up? Like 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 <laughs> excuse me, like like Fresno, <laughs> like basically Fresno. Is anyone has anyone ever been to Fresno Central Valley? It sucks. <laughs> It's it's like all the bad parts of California with none my, of the My good apologies parts. to any Fresno native listeners if they can get loud. It's like it, it's just the middle of nowhere. Like, what do, what do you do? You just grow almonds out there, and it's hot. Like, anyways, that yeah, yeah. You, you read about George Lucas's past growing up. I I'm not certain if it was near Fresno, but it was like Fresno, Modesto, somewhere Central Valley. Um. He grew up in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do. And that informs the character of Luke Skywalker. Yeah. Um, George Lucas loved to tinker on cars. He had like old Fiat's and stuff. That's like Luke's land speeder. It's like he's he's a country boy who's bored out of his mind, who aspires to something greater. And I love that. That's a, one of my favorite parts of Star Wars. Um, and, and Tatooine is amazing for yeah. that. But in universe, <laughs> yeah. the whole point is, Nobody knows or cares about Tatooine. Yeah, if, other, if everybody yeah. is constantly knowing and referring to Tatooine, Obi-Wan wouldn't have hidden Luke there. Yeah. The <laughs> like, only notable thing about Tatooine, most people wouldn't know this, is that Anakin's from there. Most people, yeah. like, that wouldn't be common knowledge. And Jabba has a palace there. Yeah. Yeah. Pod races. And Jabba has a palace there because it's easy to get out of the way of the official, yeah. you know, police and There's and no law enforcement there. And, yeah. Like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so. Tatooine, great planet. Uh, not always used well. Yeah. So it, it, I had a minor nitpick turned into a long rant, but, but that Sorry. happens on King Out Loud. No, it's, <laughs> it's the truth, though. 
Um, and my other ni- minor nitpick is um, all over this book, the the phrase "the fact is." Mm. The fact is. Antilles is doing this. The fact is, Isard is scared to do this. The fact is, the Bratix. It's like the fact is, the fact is, it's like Seriously. you can just say, <laughs> Antilles is doing this. Isard is doing this. The Bratix are. You don't have to say. The fact is, it's like fluffing your college paper. Yeah, yeah. like I'm actually curious now, and I'm gonna look up how many times. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> oh, it's still gone. <laughs> 11 times. 11 times. Book. 11 times. The fact is that we've declared war on Isard. Just say, we've declared war on Isard. Here's Gavin the has been line, wounded people. and did almost die, but the fact is that he was too tough. Just say, Gavin has been wounded and almost died, but he's he was too tough. Like, you don't need to say, the fact is. It's like people saying, it is what it is. Yes. Duh. <laughs> like, ah. <laughs> Just a, a pet peeve of mine that, that came through hard. And and that that phrase, the fact is, nowhere near as often in the first three books. I don't know where that came from in the Back to War, but... I never picked up on it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But characters. characters. Let's talk about characters. Yes. We have to start with Corrin because he's our main character. Yes. Corrin is, is back... Well, like we said in the last book, he's still a protagonist, but... He didn't have as many scenes last time because he yes. was in prison. Um, yeah, he didn't have much agency. Yeah, this book he's back with full force. Um, I would argue his role is lessened in this book. Um, and that's a good thing. I think Stackpole made allowances for other characters to um, to have a bigger impact on this story. So for Corrin, it's like he found out he has a Jedi heritage. Um, he's, you know, brought back from prison. He's back from the dead, more or less. Uh, reference everyone else. But he, his his development is not one of the primary plots in this book. He doesn't, yeah. he doesn't really grapple with the Jedi thing. He develops his relationship with Mirax, and there's a little That's, bit of yeah. The biggest thing there, is his relationship there, with the Terex. There's a very yeah. There's a very kind of traditional, I'm gonna steal your daughter kind of thing yeah. <laughs> going on. Where, um, yeah, he has some conflict with Booster, and Booster's like, uh, no cop is gonna, you know, date my daughter, and that whole conflict, but. He he doesn't really have anything like major in this book. He doesn't grapple with with his force sensitivity or his Jedi heritage. He, he gets married, but like y- y- you already saw that coming. Like him and Mirax right. don't really have any problems in their relationship. Like Eris, he's a a bad guy now, confirmed. Mm-hmm. So there's no more of the the little love triangle, love triangle thing going yeah. on. Like it, it's just like you know, Corn and Mirax are going to wind up together. There's some tension with Booster because he doesn't like Corrin because Corrin's dad put him in prison. Um, that's kind of it. Yeah, like the closest thing there is to a character, I don't know, like a nadir 
with Corrin is on Typhera when he's he's going in and, and they're like in the like customs station or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he tries to brainwash a stormtrooper. Yeah. And fails and then That's a like, good scene. And then scrambles and, and ends up like basically breaking his back and only getting being able to recover because Brojay shows up and and so, saves him. And it, but it's like but he doesn't really deal too much with the aftermath of that. Like we don't see him grow. It's just like he immediately learns his lesson it, and he's back to like infallible if, form. Eventually we will review on the podcast I Jedi, which is a huge big dump yes. of Corin character development. Yes. Very well done. Excellent book. Um but Stack yeah best. in this book yeah, you look at that scene where it's like Corrin throws to do Jedi things and he fails miserably. Um, and you would expect, slash hope for, that that would be dealt with, um, all the all the impacts of that. You know, Corrin um, dealing with his own internal conflict, yeah. like yeah. his own failure, how do I respond to my, you know, abilities or lack thereof. That's all of I, Jedi. You get that one yeah. great scene in this book, and then it never really gets brought up again. Right. He, he goes just kind of goes back to flying. He goes back to piloting. And raids and, yeah, because yeah. he, he's just a straight pilot after that, pretty much. And, and banging like, Mirax. Yeah, it's like, okay, sure. Because there's like three different scenes in this book that cut to black with Corrin and Mirax going to have sex. Yes, if if you always <laughs> thought it was weird in Star Wars that they never acknowledged the existence of human sexuality... Um, yeah, characters actually do it in this book. Yeah. Obviously not at like a R.R. Martin level, but it's... <laughs> no, no fleshy pink masks. <laughs> no two essences. Um, no, it's, it's quite tame. It's, it's, it's like, it, it's wheel of time level sexuality. Not even. Like, not even. Yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's very... It, how do I put it? It's another one of those indicators of like these books were written targeted at 13 to 15 year old boys where it's like, there's just enough there to like get your imagination working and get you worked up, but staying well short of the line where there's objectionable content for that age group. Like, yeah, if this was, like a lot of books, if you translate everything that's described in visual media, it's it's like a hard R. This book is not always at the PG level. Yeah, like, like maybe a PG thirteen in that for scene violence? with Corin. Like, yeah, 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 for violence. But oh, as a, far as like yeah, that's sexual that's fair. theme, like thematic elements, like absolutely PG. Like, um, I guess the newer Star Wars movies with their obviously better production values are PG-13 for violence as well, mm-hmm. like Rogue One. And this is written like Rogue One looks. So yeah. uh, Was, was Revenge more... of the Sith the first PG-13 Star Wars movie? Yes, it was. That's right. Yep. Because they're... they're... <laughs> for obvious reasons. Some little kids get killed. <laughs> yeah. They, well, there's the decapitation at the beginning, and you're like, oh, okay. And they don't even show the the younglings really, like you know. No, they don't. Uh, that that would go full into our territory. Yeah, and Anakin lights on fire. And, yeah, yeah. Storm, storm. Well, clone troopers slaughters a bunch of Nemoidians. Yeah, there's. Yeah. Which I'm and, I'm good with the PG thirteen. Yeah, right, right. Like this this book, if this were put to screen, 
would be a borderline PG PG thirteen. Yes, because it's mostly space combat. Yeah, yeah. You don't see like the, you know, yeah. There's like the one scene with Corin where it's like he breaks his back, and then there's uh, some of the stuff Ayala sees when the Vradix villages oh, are getting. Yes, the, the massacre one thing, of civilians. The one thing that would translating into a visual format that may really push the envelope is uh i'll just i'll just say it right now my third favorite bit in the book um ayella and her idea for commander blarit or general blarit oh that's right yes it's never explicitly said in the book what exactly they do other than she's like don't kill him and then they leave him naked in his chair but the implication is they like left him in a very compromising position as if he were engaged <laughs> in a lascivious activity yes like basically he was they left it as if he was watching some like really really awful porn and right. then and then like broadcasted it to the general population yeah. they they sought to humiliate him rather than yeah. assassinate him yeah. and and it's like but because this is the kind of book it is you can just read it as oh well we just left him naked and that that embarrassed him <coughs> you know but when you read between the lines it was a much more strategic <laughs> humiliation yeah. i mean it's the star wars universe yeah you know yeah, like they they could have if 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 I were Ayala in that situation, it's like you put on some like Vradex porn and then leave him <laughs> naked in his chair, and he, then it's like, well, that undermines his whole credibility with, right. with the humans on Typhara. If he's enjoying yeah. the, uh, <laughs> if he's finding sexual enjoyment in the oh, native the population <laughs> that he's oppressing, I mean, it's Star. We took we talked about this in yeah. Wedge's Gambit, right? People get with ferrets. It's, there are it's there are some problematic elements in interspecies sexual relations when you get into the racial undertones of yeah. alien species in Star Wars. But that doesn't really come up in this. Book. It doesn't. Yeah. Not like Wedge's Gamble, where it's like <laughs> no <laughs> broadcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, this book, it's more like yeah, it, it doesn't really. Doesn't yeah. Really so. Anyways, yeah. characters. We were on characters. <laughs> we were. We got uh, way off. <laughs> so uh, Gavin gets a lot more he does. text in this book. Gavin's my boy. He's great. He's my favorite character in this book easily. Um, and going forward because thankfully he gets more of a, of a role in future Star Wars. Yes, he, he eventually becomes the commander of Rogue Yeah, Squadron. he takes Wedge's blood. I mean like 20 years from now. Yeah, yeah um, way down the line. He becomes... You know, wedge well, maybe basically. Not, maybe not twenty years because he's the commander in uh, I Jedi. Oh, is he? Yeah, because Wedge has uh, moved on to so not command. even twenty years. More command. like he's more become like a general. Six years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Gavin. Yeah, Gavin is great, great because he's <laughs> uh, he's another Tatooine farm boy, but he has no force powers. He's just naive and and. But he grows. He, he grows. He grows in every book. He's, you know, it's a bit of a stereotype, but he's, he's the naive youngster, but in every book he, he achieves new growth. And so in this one, um, you see him tie in like his family yep. with Huff Dark Lighter. Oh, oh man. I just remembered a scene that I totally would have had in my three favorites. 
Oh. Yeah, there's some good stuff with Gavin's family. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. He 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 shows his worth, um, you know, in their little guerrilla warfare effort. Um, brings in uh, his, we'll have his uncle, right? Uncle. Yeah. 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 Biggs' is dad. Um, yeah. Biggs from the movies. Movie. <laughs> I guess he dies. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, <laughs> they, you know, he brings in equipment and other logistical support that they need. Um, but what really stuck out to me is Gavin's investment in like the people of the Hallinet colony. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Hallinet scenes were very strong. Um, for Farrell Court. Yeah, I, I think. With Gavin, you get the perspective that has you invest in, like, what's at stake. Yeah, like, Gavin, he has his own character arc, his his, his growth, his, his conflict. But at a baseline level, he is the kind of the idealistic, or maybe not, not even idealistic, but the the bread and butter member of the rebellion, like the kind of person who joins the rebellion for the most common reasons. Like yeah. he, he is a bedrock good person. Fight the bad guys. Fight the bad guys. Liberate the oppressed. Liberate the oppressed and has the, the personal connection where somebody from somebody close, somebody from his family, whatever has been taken by the empire. Right. And it's like you you have the laundry list of like these are all the right reasons to go to war. Yes. And Gavin is that guy. Yes. So, uh I want to talk about Booster and Card though. Yeah, they're good. Good pair. Fantastic. <laughs> they're they're, fun to read. Those scenes are just fun. Like yeah. like two two crooks. They're, they're they're both dicks <laughs> yeah. in their own ways. Like they're they're not they're not nice people. No, but they're fun to read about. They they're all about uh, monetary gain. Mm-hmm. They're both super rude, but in different ways. Yes, like Booster's just the abrasive. Like he's a walking middle finger, basically. Yeah, and then. Card is is this like needling, passive aggressive, condescending? <laughs> yeah. Like you, you, you just, you know, like yeah. If 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 you're watching like um, Tombstone, <laughs> Booster Tarek is like Kurt Russell, and and Talon Card is like Val Kilmer. 90s Val Kilmer would be a great casting choice for Tom. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Get him a little dye job and then yep. grow that mustache, oil it up a little bit. Yeah, would have been yeah. would have been a great, <laughs> great choice. Oh, yeah, they're, they're fun. Um, I want to talk about, and I need to double check this because this is actually important. Um, the spelling of her name. Who's that? Melina Carnes. Oh, the traitor. 
I don't know what possessed Michael A. Stackpole to name her this. Melina Carnes, and Carnes is spelled with a C. Mara Jade, a, a Timothy Zahn character, had a previous alias, Selena Marnus. The exact same name, but the C and the M swapped on names. Really? That was her name when she was infiltrating Jabba's palace. And the first time I read this book, I was like, oh, heck yeah, Talon Card and, and Mara Jade is with him. Like, sweet. And then she's a traitor, and they're like, gonna go, like, torture her and kill her. And I'm like, what? No, th- this doesn't make any sense. And I and and then I went back and looked at my source book, and I was like, it's a different name. Yeah. Like, she is, so I just <laughs> looked it up on Wikipedia. She is a different person. Yes. However, she's also a character in the Mara Jade comics. Oh my gosh. She is Jabba the Hutt's choreographer. I shit you not. Yeah, no, Mara Jade masquerades as Jabba the Hutt's choreographer, Selena Marnus. Mara Jade, so they they have a conflict that's in the Mara Jade comics. Right, right. Yeah, They, they, they have this, like... Yeah, yeah, but Melina Karnas is in this book. Right. And she's the traitor, and she's somebody totally different. And I'm like, Stackpole, yeah. dude, chill. <laughs> yeah. So confusing. <laughs> like, So, at why? the time Mara Jade <laughs> met, this is getting way, way out there. Um, when Mara Jade was at Jabba's Palace, her name was Arika. That was her... Right. Yeah. That, and that then was her she alias. takes over She the, met Melina Carnes. Selena Marnes. Was Mara Jade's alias when she infiltrated Card's organization. Oh my god. Yeah. <sighs> A, an intentional anagram. <laughs> yeah, no joke intentional, but yeah. come on. <laughs> um... Oh, it's look, always bugged me. Look for the Timothy Zahn 1995 short story, Slot of Hand, The Tale of Mara Jade. That'll cover all of that for you. Uh, which is in Tales from Jabba's Palace, which yes. I think I yes. recently acquired. And I'm quite yeah, John is John is on an epic quest to acquire an entire, what, post-ROTJ. All of the Bantam and Del Rey era, pre-Disney, which is in a commentary on the quality of Disney EU. They've done a lot of good stuff. I'm not one of those. You just want that. I just want, I just want the, like my childhood era of EU for Mm -hmm. nostalgic reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So I could even argue that like what what, the new Canon equivalent to rogue squadron is like the alphabet squadron series books. Sort of. It's kind of like a blend of rogue and Wraith. Yes. But they're also great. I, I apparently need to go back and, and check those out again. I read the first one and I was very meh. It's okay. It goes way yeah. up from there. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and that author... Um, Alexander Freed. He did, what, one or two stories in the uh, short fiction collection that we covered a Correct. while ago? Correct. Yeah. And he did, did well. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't believe that episode... Oh, no. We, we must have made that episode public. 
we must have made that episode public. It originally was a, a Patreon-only episode, but, um, but yeah, I think that's public now, so check that out if you haven't. Um, and check us out on Patreon if you haven't, because we do really fun stuff for Patreon exclusives as well. Uh, but yeah, I, unless you have any other character points, yeah. um, miscellaneous stuff. Um, I like Voru. He's a good POV character. Uh, I despise Voru. Yeah, he's a terrible person. But he's, he's okay. Um, I liked Lure more. Okay. As yeah. our as our yeah. imperial point of view, mm-hmm. um, and they could have kept Lore alive through through this book. That would have been interesting, but but Voru just was a little too caricature ish. Yeah, like a little too mustache twirly. Yeah, um, and and like the the Arisi stuff with him mm-hmm. never really rung true, or it's like. I, I thought Lure made Arisi a worse character. Mm. Because she went from being a really good undercover spy yes. to just being like blatantly evil and and power hungry in every way. Yeah. And I don't know, like like for Arisi that we knew in the first three books, it makes no sense that she would be attracted to Voru because the way it's framed is like she's only really into him. Because he represents an avenue to power for her. Right. But that was never really... Like, like her whole motivation for being the spy in the first place was to just, like, help her family get ahead. Um, like, she wasn't this super power-hungry, kind of, like, selfish character. Yeah. And then in this book, she becomes kind of a caricature of herself, almost. Um, kind of like all the other bad guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, maybe, maybe I'm being a shallow reader here, and that was a theme that Stackpole was going for. Could be. And in if if that's the case, kudos because he nailed it. <laughs> um, but but yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, my my kind of just like last minute miscellaneous thoughts. I I love the. I love the final battle. Like, yeah, that was, that was awesome. Yeah, the the space combat in this book is really well written. Yeah, stands out. Some of the visuals, like when when Lusankio, um, like wrecks the freedom the first mm-hmm. time in the description, you can just see like every starboard ion cannon firing. It's described as like whole sheets of blue energy erupting yeah. from the side. You're like. Damn, I want to see that on the screen. You yeah, know? It, it's it's great description. Um, I, I always come back to the Empire War game. Yeah, for mm-hmm. visualizing these scenes, and you know, looks like something from 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 that game. And um, but it it makes sense for the scale. Um, the Starfighter combat is probably better in this book than any previous yeah definitely installment definitely um great balance between like the description of the action and the character's internal feelings about what's happening it's yeah just does a really good job and i also like the tactics in this one um yeah there's some some trickery yeah 
the whole twist about the the missile launchers and sensor arrays uh-huh. and everything that was great yeah you know you, you have this moment of like <gasps> you know when when the Lusankia approaches the station and f- over 400 torpedo and missile sensors light up and lock on and you're just like oh that's where all of these mm-hmm. have been going and then the Lusankia runs away and you're like crap well you know, they just lost that whole like advantage, right. and then, and then you get. I, I was glad that it wasn't quite exactly the same thing um, when that moment of realization hits during the actual Battle of Typhera, where it's like you know we, you know Captain Drisso's point of view, and, and you get that sensor officer's report, mm-hmm. and he's like, "We have multiple incoming missile locks." He's like, "Oh, you know how many?" He's like, "Uh." A dozen, sir. He's like, ah, oh, minuscule. Yeah. He's like, ah, uh, now 20. Ah, no matter. It's just a squadron of... And he's like, now 40. Now 80. More. And you're like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> like, and then you you get that moment of realization that's like, okay. The actual missiles and launchers are here. Yeah, they're on the freighters and they're using the, yeah. the rogues guidance yeah, data. yeah telemetry yeah yeah good stuff yeah just tons of fun unique um not just a straight yeah I, I mean i've read i have not read every single star wars book but i've read a lot, a lot of them yeah and i can't recall another battle that uses an idea like that or nope. a twist like that like mm. maybe some stuff in the thrawn trilogy Like that part where they use like the cloaked ship to make it look like it's going through the ship. Uh, I mean, well, yeah, there there are other like cool yeah. ideas. I'm, I'm not saying there aren't any other cool ideas, but like I haven't read a, a twist like that oh, where yeah, no. you're given to understand uh, a circumstance for a battle, and then in a totally different battle, all of the materiel is used in a different way. Right, and yes. you're like, oh, that's a tie back to. Oh, you know, yeah. like mm-hmm. that's the good stuff. <clears throat> yeah, lots of fun. Yeah. Um, shall we head into favorite scenes? Sure. Yeah. Well, you can start with your third favorite. I've already, uh, you know, said what my third <clears throat> favorite was, but um, third favorite. <clears throat> I I quite like the infiltration scene where Ayala. And Elskull go into the whatever it is palace on Thyphera. The estate, yeah, yeah, and they arrange their. You know, Elskull has this dynamic as being like a hardcore rebel, like assassination, destruction. That's the only way they'll learn. And Ayala is trying to mitigate that with like, well, mm-hmm. hold on, like yeah. we need to still be the good guys, still need to have moral superiority, and they come up with this compromise in which they. <laughs> They get their target, but they put him in an embarrassing, compromising position. Yeah, they uh, undermine his political power rather than just kill him. Right, yeah. And I thought that was, like, yeah, that, that was unique in Star Wars. and um, The dynamic between those characters I really enjoyed. Just Elskull and I a lot. Yeah, they yeah. did have a lot of good 
uh, good scenes together. Uh, they, they played off each other well and, and ultimately kind of came to this understanding. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was that was nice. I considered that scene myself. Uh, once again, I love the visuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe more than, than any other book uh, Stackpole has written, except for I, Jedi. Um, well, but, but there are there are so many just painted scenes in my head from this book. It's very cinematic. Like the idea in that scene of them like going across the mountain trail under the mm-hmm. waterfall, you know, breaking through the sensor net, and and some of the some of the visuals that that they have with you know the painted blue stormtrooper armor, the yep. midnight blue blending into the the twilight, like there's. Great description in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can visualize it like a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I've already done my my third favorite, so you can go right on into your second favorite. Sure. Um, <clears throat> second favorite. It's tough to say. Yeah. Um, we can talk about this together because I think it's your second favorite as well. Okay. Um, but the the, the Halinet battle scene, mm-hmm. like I was saying earlier, it gives mm-hmm. you a sense of like what what are the good guys fighting for? So you you have this pretty innocuous colony um, that's on a world that's not terraformed. You know, they're very reliant upon outside supplies, um, and they need Bacta, which of course they can't buy from the cartel that Isard runs because it's too expensive. Yep. But the rogues liberate it and give them some, and they're very appreciative. And you, you get a sense for the, the hero's gratitude towards these people um, plugging into that community. And then they all get massacred, just wiped out by um, by Convarian's ship and, and his TIE squadrons and stormtroopers. And, and, and a receipt. Yeah, and... and you feel that impact. It's like characters that you met are, are dead now. Like the civilians are all getting, you know, executed. And so you have this scene where Gavin takes what revenge he can, which of course is very minor mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things, him being in one, one X wing. Um, but it just has great emotional impact and um, just this small scale microcosm of the, of larger conflict yeah it, it really does pack a punch you're right it is my second favorite scene um and i think an element of it that m- makes it have that punch is that you know we see imperial atrocities throughout throughout the series yeah and we see alderan where we're told well they don't have any weapons they're pacifists mm-hmm. and they blow up the planet but that's a very removed. Yeah, you, you don't, don't see the people of Alderaan. You don't. You don't get the sense of their pacifism. It's not a. It's a very it's... impersonal destruction. Yeah. This it's like Stackpole goes out of his way to introduce you to this character Farrell Court twice. Yes. In the in the quarantine He's and the Gavin character. This guy's awesome. He's yeah. just like he's a good dude. He's just a nice guy. He just wants to like. Hey, come to our 
like super cool geothermal chasm yeah. resort yeah. place. We have seafood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have we have delicious trout and <laughs> hot tubs. Yeah. And and a beautiful view. Again, awesome mental image, by right. the way. Yeah. I, I pictured this planet super well. Oh yeah. On this world. And then and, and then it's specifically noted when when the attack happens and Gavin's like you guys got to get to defensive positions. And Farrell Court is like, we don't have weapons. Yeah. There's nothing. And Gavin gives him his blaster. And your heart just breaks. Yep. And then you know Farrell Court dies. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it just, the impact of that, it's like, it the, the rebellion empire dynamic, it's, you know, it's part of Star Wars. It's very common. It's done very well here. You know what the main heroes are fighting for. You know what's at stake. Because this is what happens to innocent people yeah. that stand in the Empire's way. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was It was a scene full of impact, emotion, and some of the strongest writing in the book. Yeah. I'll even say this, something that's just been missing from more recent Star Wars media, um, even the parts that I like, is that you don't really get a sense of the Empire as a threat. Yeah. Like, there, there's this... Uh, the Empire is the bad guys on inertia. Right. Like, you go into it, and there's the expectation that you know the Empire is evil. It, it, it's that, like, you saw the original trilogy, so you know the Empire is bad. It's... Yeah. There's no more work in developing, like... I mean, there's, like, one Mandalorian episode. Yeah, yeah, that there's... an exception to this. I was, but I was just But in general, with more recent Star Wars media, it's like, you know they're bad because you watched the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, my main complaint is, like, they're not a threat. They're just bumbling, incompetent bad guys. Yeah. In this book, you have them wreaking havoc. Um, the victories are much narrower, much closer. And and maybe, maybe the most, uh, like, contemporary aspect of the horror here is that this massacre of the Hellenic colony was perpetrated because their profit margins were affected. Right. Yeah. It's it's like, well, if they get free BACTA, then other people can get free BACTA. We can't have that happen. So Yeah, let's... like like this this would be the equivalent of, you know, like some some uh you know, radical libertarian group <laughs> yeah. uh, raids an Amazon warehouse <laughs> and distributes a bunch of like books and DVDs everywhere. And then Amazon r- retaliates by like destroying a town in Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not put books and DVDs <laughs> on the same level as like life saving medical no, but, supplies. But, like, but, but in terms of like cartel, like, y- yeah, you know, like level it, capitalism, it, it's more, it's like a corporate. Yeah. More of a corporate monopoly more than the Yem. It's it's more it's not the like Sith bad guy yeah. empire so much as it's like, well, if we let every planet get away with this, we're not gonna make money. Exactly. 
So we have to kill them all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we need to make an example yes, of them. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Like, that's Everyone so needs to up. fear this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what was your favorite scene? Uh, gosh, I just really loved the last space battle. Yeah. I, I love... Yeah. It's like Lusakia jumps to the, the Rogue Squadron station and they scare them off with the sensor data. And then it jumps back and they're still fighting. And they get slammed by the surprise attack from all the Q-ship freighters that have, yeah. you know, the torpedoes and missiles on them. And it's, it's just a really well done battle. The Starfighter combat is... Mm-hmm. is yeah, that, that moment of, like, anticipation where you get a Drisso point of view and you're like, all right, here you go. And Lusankia reverts in space over Typhara. And he's like, all guns prepare. And he looks around and he's like, nothing's happening. Yeah. What's going on? <laughs> and then... Boom! Star Destroyer, Alderanian Rover Cruiser, like just they all jump in right on top and attack, yeah. and you're like, "Oh yeah, here yeah. we go!" And then, and then of course you realize he left all of his Tie Squadrons back at the station. Uh-huh. Like he doesn't have any Tie Fighter support. Fighter the rogues, driver. the rogues can you know run their TRD on on mm-hmm. Lusakia and yeah. Good reference. Yeah. Excellent. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. So, uh, my favorite scene, though, is after that, mm-hmm. when Corrin gets called up to help negotiate with Booster. Yes. And we have this just amazing four-way battle of minds and tongues among Corrin, Kraken, Booster, and Card. And it results in Booster walking away with the Errant Venture. Which, the Air Adventure is one of the greatest ideas ever in Star Wars. You go, Michael A. Stackpole. I'm so glad it's in <laughs> books, like, way after this, too. I know! It's Every time the, it shows up, you're like, yeah! It's in the NJO, <laughs> it's in Legacy. It's like, Booster, this cantankerous old bastard, gets <laughs> an Imperial Star Destroyer as his flying <laughs> casino. Yeah! It's great. <laughs> And you, and you like you find out that he's like, yeah, I want to paint this thing red, and then he can't find enough red paint to yeah. do it. And then you find out it's because Talon Card was like secretly buying up all the red paint to, to slip the middle him. finger. Yeah. <laughs> and then later on, Booster finally does get all of his red paint, and the implication is that he had to buy it from Card at a markup. I- like, <laughs> I love it in uh, in Thrawn's Revenge, where when you get Aaron Venture, when you're playing New Republic, you park it above a planet and it increases your profit from that planet. Nice. And then you can upgrade it at a shipyard to bring it up to full specs for its armament. Oh, that's amazing. Like, way later, like, like NJO era. But, the the yeah. people who made Thrawn's Revenge are, are absolute heroes. Like, it speaks to my soul. Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, I think that brings us to the end of our coverage of the Back to War. Yes. Uh, but we have a final draft here. An excellent final draft. Yes, an excellent final draft. Um, so, John and I, once again, are, are drinking the same beer. Uh, this is a barley wine style ale mm-hmm. from Verboten Brewing Company An in English Loveland. English style barley yeah, wine. Yeah, excuse me. English style barley wine. That is important. <laughs> that is important. Yes. Uh, from Verboten in Loveland, Colorado. Uh, what is this? 14.2%. It's a hefty one. Um, 
John, talk, talk about how delicious this is. Uh, incredibly. It's like, it's like golden raisins. It's, it's like dark fruit soaked in brown sugar. It's just, it's delightful. Mm. Mm. So yeah, the description on the can is an English-inspired barley wine, double-oaked, with cognac staves and rye whiskey barrels. Uh, oh, yeah. It's hard to beat. My goodness. Yeah, I just took is another sip of it. Is there a better barley wine in Colorado? I'm not sure if there is. Uh, so, there is. Okay. Uh, well, I, in my opinion. Well, I did a, I did a double-blind barley wine tasting uh-huh. uh, earlier this year with a, with a couple of other people. We had six different barley wines from from uh, a few different places. We and this was one of them. Was one. Uh, and this one finished third. Okay. Um, Still high price. Second place was from Anchorage Brewing Company in Alaska. Oh, I, th- I was talking about just Colorado. But first was from Colorado. Oh. And that was Double Barrel Louie from Westbound and Down. Okay. Um. Yeah, that that beer. That's hard to find too. Yeah, extremely hard to find. Yeah. Um, this is a bit. Well, we live next to this. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the thing. <laughs> Westbound and Down is up in the mountains, like a, a three and a half hour drive from here, and Verboten is maybe twenty minutes. Yeah, twenty minutes away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but as delicious as this beer is, you know, of course, the name is important. Drinking out loud. Uh, and it's thematically important. But it requires a little bit of backstory. This beer was brewed by the owners of Verboten, uh, a husband and wife. And they brewed this as a a memorial to their wedding. Uh, You know, sort of a promise to each other. And so, of course, this goes out to Corrin and Mirax, who also got married (laughs) in... in, uh, The last chapter. Yeah, the last chapter. This beer is called Grow Old With You. And it's delightful. This is the double-oaked cognac version. They have several versions of them, all pretty much delicious. This one's probably the best. But, uh, yeah, uh, of of the ones they've released so far, this one's the best. In fact, this beer has won uh, gold medals at the 2018 and 2020 Festival of Barrel-Aged Beers. This is a national um, competition. This beer is freaking amazing. And we're always happy to wrap yeah. local beers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're spoiled. We're spoiled <laughs> living in northern Colorado. But yeah, I think that uh that brings us to the end of this episode. This this is a super fun series for anyone who enjoys fighter combat, action heavy sci-fi. Um, yeah. Even if you're not familiar with the Star Wars universe, this will bring you right in. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this has been episode 142 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, next up, uh, I believe we will be heading on into Small Favor, uh, the 11th book, 10th book. No, excuse me. We'll be heading into Turncoat. Wow. Yeah, sorry. We uh, Inking Out Loud's schedule has gotten very messed up, and I had to double-check our, our spreadsheet. Yeah, we're heading into Turncoat after this, which is, yeah, I think book 11 of uh, the Dresden Files. 
So check back in for that one. As always, take a look at our Patreon page if you want to support the show. That is patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. Or if you want to do a one-time donation, check us out on coffee, ko-fi.com. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my special guest, John. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.